on today's episode of Power of the Towel, part of the Nux Misconduct Network of Podcasts. Canucks in free agent frenzy recap. And it was an old-fashioned free agent frenzy. The Canucks were very, very busy. Brandon Sutter is back. Travis Hamannick is back. Halak, the new backup to Thatcher Demko, Tucker Pullman. The big signing on the right side of the defense. Canucks also were very busy when it comes to the Abbotsford AHL team. Lots of signings there. And since we last recorded, of course... Brain Holpe officially bought out. Nate Schmidt traded for essentially the same thing that Canucks gave just under a year ago. We get into all of that, and our guest this week is none other than Harmon Dial, the boy genius from The Athletic. Should be a good one. You'll be saying wow every time you use this towel. He's not a person at all. He's a towel. You're a towel. But in Vancouver, mainly it's all about towel power. Are you ready? Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Power of the Towel Part, the Nux Misconduct Network of Podcasts. Make sure to subscribe to the network wherever you get podcasts. Lots of great content coming out. Sip on a 40, the return of Sip it on a 40. Silky and filthy back. And of course, this show, Power the Towel, part of the Next Misconduct Network of Podcasts, hosted by myself, Nicholas Jeffrey Bondi. That is my full name. Okay, well, there's, there's been a lot to discuss over the past week when it comes to the Vancouver Canucks. The Canucks were arguably the busiest team in the free agent period this year, they signed a bevy of contracts, and it, it's tough to, to know where to start. It, it's really tough to, to know where to start and where these all should fall into place in terms of order of magnitude, but I guess let's start with the new additions. Let's start with Tucker Pullman, signed to a four-year, $2.5 million AAV contract a concerted effort by Jimbo and the Vancouver Canucks to fix that right side of the defense. Now, is the defense different? Yes. Is it better? I don't know. That right side of the defense with Tucker Pullman is still a concern. I look at that right side, and it's three kind of four or five guys in the sense that you don't have one player there that's a legitimate, in my view, top four defenseman. And that's a concerning part if you're a Canucks fan is the right side still has questions. You know, it's going to be Tyler Myers, Tucker Pullman, Travis Hamnick, and Luke Shen. That is the depth of the right of that right side of the defense. I think Travis Ham. We'll get to Travis Hamnick in a bit, but I think Tucker Pullman is essentially going to be paired with OEL to start Oliver Ekman Larson, and I can see why the Canucks are trying to get this guy. He, if you look at the numbers. I'm not saying he's going to be the next Chris Tanev, but that's the comparison I think the Canucks see between Tucker Pullman and Chris Tanev, a guy who doesn't create much offense but doesn't take many penalties. Now, the contract is maybe a bit rich. You know, $2.5 million doesn't seem like a lot. But for four years and a guy who some people say is a bottom-pairing defenseman, again, the Canucks probably think 
He's the next Chris Tanev. The truth lies somewhere in the middle. He's a 4-5 guy, and whether that guy is deserving of a $2.5 million contract over the next four years, I don't know. That one, that of all the new guys seems sort of, sort of a bit rich. Still a lot of questions on the Vancouver Canucks right side of the defense, I think. Even with Tucker Pullman, it, it's hard to say where he's going to slot in as a, as a 4 or 5 defenseman on this Canucks, but that's what we'll ask Harmon Dial, boy genius of the Athletic, about in just a few minutes. Halak is going to be the new backup for the Vancouver Canucks. He signed a one-year, $1.5 million AAV contract, but it's really $3 million for one year because he has a bonus where if he plays 10 games, I think he gets that $1.5 million bonus. So he's going to be paid $3 million probably uh, next year, but only $1.5 against the cap for this reason. And initially, I didn't really get the structure of the deal because of that. Why are you paying Halak that much? You know, $3 million for for a backup, I guess, is fair market value. But you structure that deal to say it, all these deals are about saving, and all the moves the Canucks have made are about saving cap dollars for this season specifically. That bonus will be an overage that they apply to next season, but Halak, the new backup, hey, if Ian Clark wants the guy, I'll get behind him. I'll 100% get behind him. Ian Clark really wanted Halak as the backup. Again, I initially didn't really get the structure of the deal, but it sounds like it was done to preserve cap for this season. Next cap, be damned. Brandon Sutter is back. Yes, after my initial just move on Jimbo take, he was signed to a pretty modest downgrade and contract. We got here, he's going to be signed to a one-year $1.125 million cap hit, which means if Tyler, if sorry, if Brandon Sutter sucks ass, you just bury him in the minors and it won't really affect that much. I mean, I think people are going to be a lot chiller on Brandon Sutter next season than they were in years past because he's only, again, making $1.125 million. In the salary cap era, you are judged predominantly how much you are getting paid relative to your worth. Brandon Sutter at $1.125, fair enough. If he gets injured, makes a mistake, there's another guy who slots in. Brandon Sutter at 4.375 like he was at the expiry of this contract, not worth it. 100% not worth it. So it's going to be interesting to see how the perception of Brandon Sutter, I think, changes next season when he's not making as much. He's 32 years old. We know his history with injuries. Does he play a full season or close to a full season? I doubt it, but at 1.125, there's ways to... You know, get around that cap-wise where you just slot someone else in and it's not going to be really that that big of a deal. Tons of Abbotsford signings. Tons, 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 tons of Abbotsford signings. Guys like Brad Hunt, world junior legend Nick Patan, Brady Keeper, Kyle Burrows, Phil DiGiuseppe, you know, these AHL plus guys, these guys who are very good AHL players, 
but they lack a certain something to not stick at the National Hockey League level. That's, you know, the, the plan for Abbotsford this season. I think Abbotsford's going to be a pretty good team right off the hop, essentially because of that. But I think, like guys like Brad, even a guy like Brad Hunt, he can come in, challenge for a spot at camp. Luke Shen, two years, 800K. He's not an AHL signing. He's probably going to be a healthy scratch, slots in when a guy gets injured. That's a tidy piece of business. That's a guy who you, you come in, you're not expecting that much, two years, 800K. He'll be a nice depth piece. So Abbotsford, they're going to be half, I think they're going to be halfway decent next season. I mean, the big prospect on that team is probably going to be Danila Klimovich, maybe, most likely Mikey DiPietro. But Abbotsford, I think I'm going to go check out a couple of games. They were, uh, they're going to be halfway decent, I think, next season because of all these AHL plus signings. And credit to Frankie. He's opening up the checkbook. Frankie is opening up the checkbook once again. That deserves, that deserves a little round of applause. Thank you. Can't believe I'm begging Francesco Aquilini to spend money and thanking him for spending money. He should just be doing that already. But after last season where he clearly cut everyone off, hey, more power to him, I guess. The two transactions of note from last season's team since we last talked, Hopi officially bought out. This was a bit of a surprise. I thought the market was... Hot on Brain Holpe. I was reading reports from insiders like Rick Dollywall that he could get signed. But looks like Brain Holpe cap hit next season for the buyout was 500000 Next season after that, 22-23, million. Jake Vertanen also officially bought out. Good rinse. Nate Schmidt. Traded for a 2022 third-round pick. The Jets' 2022 third-round pick. So the Canucks don't have their own third-round pick. Obviously, that was sent to Las Vegas for Nate Schmidt, but they got a third-round pick back for Nate Schmidt, which is Winnipeg. So they have Winnipeg's and not their own. They pretty much return. It's, it's like returning a piece of clothing or whatever, you know, electronic after... Just as it's about to expire. The warranty is about to expire. You just exchange it, and there you go. No harm, no foul. Nate Schmidt traded for a third-round pick. Very clearly did not want to be here. Pretty clear on that, judging from his comments in in Winnipeg and his media availability. But all in all, for the Vancouver Canucks this offseason, it's about being better for next season. And I know there's a t- there's a few fans out there who I think we talked about this with Sean Warren. There's a few fans out there. There's there's I would say, you know, there's a chunk of fans out there who want a more patient rebuild. This team is not a rebuilding team. And I know it, it sucks that they missed a bunch of opportunities along the way while they were actually rebuilding to monetize, you know, do what the Arizona Coyotes did and take on a bad contract for a prospect and pick or, you know, 
trade assets at the trade deadline. They didn't do any of that, really. But this team is not a rebuilding team, and it's important for next season to actually be a halfway decent team and not crash and burn like they did last season. I'm going to use this example again. Bo Horvat, he's seeing his buddy Josh Anderson. He was in his wedding party. He's seeing his buddy Josh Anderson not only play in the Stanley Cup final, but score. I'm sure he's watching that thinking, hey, I want a piece of that. A guy like JT Miller coming from a successful organization like the Tampa Bay Lightning, traded right before they won two straight cups. He wants to be a winner. You're going to see a lot more guys walk out if they just punt on next season like a few fans wanted. So the Canucks are 100% going to be better for next season. I don't think there's any doubt about it. How well they'll do, I think it really depends on how the Pacific Division shapes up. I love the top nine. I love the top nine of the Canucks. I think that's, you know, right up there with Vegas for best in the division unless, you know, a team like Calgary trades for Jack Eichel. Just don't look at the defense. And the goaltending is going to be great. They're going to have to win every game 5-4. So I think for the Vancouver Canucks, it was important for them to to make moves to be better next season. 100%. It was important for them to make moves to be better. Now, whether this is going to affect the long-term outlook of the Vancouver Canucks, yeah, probably. You add a big contract like OEL to your deal, to your books, that's going to affect it. But there could be no doubt right now that the Vancouver Canucks will be a better team for next season. And that was the whole point of this offseason. And let's not forget, it's there's motivation for Jimbo for the, for the team to be a lot better next year and to be aggressive because he's out of a job. If they don't do well, don't make a playoff run next season. Although, how long have we been saying, oh, this is the year Jim Benning is on the chopping block? So, I'll believe it when I see it, but the team will be a lot. I think the team will be a lot better next season. They should be in contention, I think, for a top three spot in the Pacific Division. Anyways, as we mentioned off the top, our guest this week is none other than the boy genius himself, Harmon Dial. Just a minute. Don't hang up. Yellow. You'll have to speak up. I'm wearing a towel. Okay, so we now welcome on the Power of the Towel podcast, part of the Next Misconduct Network of Podcasts. It's the return of the boy genius, Harmon Dial. Harm, are you doing today? I'm doing really well, man. How about you? I'm doing, I'm doing well, you know, trying to survive the smoke, survive the heat, survive everything that's out there. Um, you know what? You know, last time you were on this podcast, I had just started this thing. January of 2020. So a lot has changed, I assume, for both of us since then. Uh, I've, we've been doing this with all recurring guests, a little performance review. How do you think you did the first time you're on? I know it's a while ago. Yeah, um, I can honestly... Was that the... Man, that feels like so long ago. I'm not Over a year and a half. Remember. Yeah. I actually remember the uh, the podcast um, with Kyle that you were on as well. Much, uh, much better. Yes, yeah, that um, was after that the, was during the playoffs. Yeah, that was during the playoffs. Yeah, right after they won against the Blues. Yeah, I remember that much more vividly than the last time we did this podcast. I'm not gonna lie; like, I, I, it's not even like I end up doing a lot of these podcasts, 
so it's just there are so many and and so it just kind of all falls yeah you're, the, you're so popular my, yeah it's, it's become you're so popular it just becomes a blur so many podcasts so many no, podcasts done. no no my memory is just not very good that's what it is okay well i was actually listening to that episode before we started and it was a good conversation i thought we did i thought we both performed pretty well but i gotta ask you one question i've been wondering since then have you taken up my suggestion of creating a Tinder profile with just the bio being the boy genius. I don't. I don't think I've ever. I haven't used actually Tinder um, in like a couple of years now. So I don't think I've actually. Oh, I now I kind of remember when you made that suggestion. Yeah, I don't think I've used any dating apps since um, since that podcast. So. Okay, you know what? You, you still have time. You're still a young man. I'm, you've got plenty of years to take my suggestions. Don't worry about it. But. You know what? Let's <laughs> let, let's get to some hockey talk. Uh, a lot of moves done by the Vancouver Canucks over the past, you know, few days since uh, free agency opened. The Canucks were probably one of the busiest teams in free agency. But uh, I just want to know your general thoughts on the Canucks free agent period. How do you think they did? Now that we have you know a few days to, to digest what they've done. Uh, do you mean free agency specifically, or just, just the overall a, kind j- of off just work? just the overall kind of offseason work? Yeah, I think in terms of the overall, you know, summer Vancouver had, you know, I think it was pretty evident after, at the end of the season that the Canucks, you know, Jim Benning had made that vow to be aggressive. And and so you knew that was coming. And so even though the magnitude of the blockbuster trade they had was still shocking, I, I think in light of that context, knowing that this was the direction the team was going in, I honestly think the, the Canucks um, made out quite well this offseason, and they ticked off a lot of the boxes they needed to. Um, they fared a lot better than I expected them to. And so I think for the most part, and, and there are some individual moves to quibble with, but um, I, I again, I thought for the most part, they did really good work this offseason. Uh, you start with um, Jason Dickinson for a third-round pick, taking advantage of the expansion process. And um, that was really a unique opportunity that, you know, we had talked about for so long and, and the Canucks executed on that successfully. I mean, you know, people, um, I think, looked at Dickinson and, you know, he's not the sexiest name because he's he doesn't have points and he's definitely got more of a defensive bent to his game so doesn't get a lot of fanfare and he was definitely overshadowed by some of the other moves but you know acquiring a competent third line center who who has the right stylistic fit for what the Canucks need uh for just a third round pick I I thought that was one of their most underrated moves of the entire offseason because you know I remember having conversations with people within within the organization and you know before that trade there was all that discussion about will JT Miller have to play center and I think there was a genuine fear of it's going to be really hard to find center help right you can get help Mm -hmm. on the wings you can get wingers but when you looked at the free agent free agent market um, you saw what Philip Deneau signed for uh, and even kind of moving down the ladder, there just weren't a lot of, in my opinion, really good third line center fits for, for the Canucks. And even when I looked at potential trade uh, trade options, there just wasn't a whole lot that stuck out. And so I thought third line center was going to be one of the hardest holes for the Canucks to fill. And yeah, the Canucks could have just run JT Miller full time at third line center and he would have been fine there. But Miller is significantly better on the wing. Like, unlock the best version of JT Miller. He's playing on the uh, 
Uh, and so I'd done that deep dive. And the fact that Bucks netted Dickinson for such an inexpensive rate, I was definitely a big fan of that. Um, and you kind of advance beyond that. Obviously, the the signature move was the blockbuster with Arizona. I mean, again, I think direction-wise, uh, I would have maybe preferred that the Canucks struck a bit more of a balance between being conservative and aggressive. And so maybe they hadn't, you know, I'm not sure if I, if I agreed with the idea of kind of punting on... Like the Canucks essentially reallocated one year of cat misery and took on a larger liability on Oliver Ekman-Larsen. But again, you knew this direction was coming. You knew they were going to be aggressive. And so even within kind of that context, I mean, get, getting rid of all your bad contracts and one fell swoop. And, and I think the key really to that trade is Connor Garland, who I think is going to be an excellent fit in the top six. I think he's a really underrated player. Uh, so, you know, again, I'm... I definitely see the risk of Ekman Larson's contract long term, uh, but if he can bounce back, uh, it would provide it provide a significant boon short term for the team. Um, you kind of move forward, and and even something as simple as restocking uh, Abbotsford with uh, with all the depth signings they had. I mean, you look at Brad Hunt, Phil DiGiuseppe, um, Nick Patan. I mean, the the amount of one and two a contracts they made, they essentially within you know, a 48 hour window, the volume of contracts that Canucks signed was just incredible. And so the amount of work they accomplished in free agency and, uh, you know, I, I, when I look at the right side of the defense, um, you know, now with Nate Schmidt gone, first of all, I think, you know, that was another solid move. Um, you know, it obviously didn't work out and you looked at the possibility of having Myers, Schmidt and Ekman Larson all on the book um as around 18 million for the next you know two three years until Myers's contract expired that was that proposition was very very risky I think um having three aging defensemen uh, who are all uh all entering their 30s so to shed that contract without taking any salary back without retaining and to essentially get that third round pick back yeah they returned uh, Nate Schmidt initially... they returned Nate Schmidt they got the you know they had the warranty and they decided you know what it's not working out let's just return him and get some get what we got back yeah and so like obviously there's still an opportunity cost like had the Canucks it's not as simple quite as simple as they hit the undo button because you know, that near six million last offseason could have been used on, say, like Toffoli or Stetcher or Tanev or another player on the trade for agency market. Um, and that is part of the reason there is there was such a big hole in the right side of the defense. Uh, but I think, you know, within a vacuum after the year Schmidt had to get rid of that liability. Um, again, I thought that was a sudden and then going into free agency definitely wasn't the biggest fan of the Tucker Pullman contract. I think he is someone who can play really well in the third pair role. Uh, but I, th- I think is overmatched in a top four capacity um, from some of the conversations, um, you know, that uh, generally I've had with people around the league. So, you know, four years of term there, I'm, I'm not the biggest fan of that. Um, but overall, I think when you look at this Canucks team, how deep they are in the top nine and, and um, you know, given the, you know, again, Benning had promised an aggressive offseason, and I think a lot of a lot of people feared that, you know, is he going to go out and sign a Zach Hyman or a Blake Coleman to a really inflated six or seven year contract? And 
So yeah, the Ekman Larson deal carries a lot of long-term risk, but aside from that, um, you know, there are, there weren't a ton of blemishes in what the Canucks did and the overall volume of what they accomplished, I think is, um, I think is quite impressive. Yeah. And you mentioned uh, Tucker Pullman. I want to get to him in a second, but I think in general, yeah, the, the team had to be aggressive this offseason because we were. It, it's important for this team to kind of erase the bad taste out of everyone's mouth from last season, right? Like, I, I use example harm all the time of Bo Horvat. Like, Josh Anderson of the Montreal Canadiens was in Bo Horvat's wedding party, and you, you don't think he's watching the Stanley Cup Finals, watching his buddy not only play but score in the Stanley Cup Final and thinking to himself, you know, I want to be a part of that. I want to be in those big games. Like JT Miller came from a successful Tampa Bay organization. He traded him and they won two cups without him. Like these guys, there was going to be more, more trades and more like kind of trade demands. Like we saw with Nate Schmidt, if the team didn't improve next season and kind of did what maybe some people who take a longer term view wanted, which is kind of let all these bad contracts expire and, you know, move on and try and reload for that 2022 offseason, right? And I think there's a misconception out there from some who take a longer-term view that this is still a rebuilding team. This is not a rebuilding team. Not anymore. I don't think you can say they stop being a rebuilding team when they trade a first-round pick for JT Miller, right? Like, that's the end of a rebuilding process for me. And, yeah, it sucks that they didn't really take advantage of some of those opportunities that exist for rebuilding teams. Like, I think of the Arizona Coyotes, like, taking a pair, or sorry, three just bad contracts. One of them, Louis Erickson, who was literally dead cap space. Like, you're not getting any value out of Louis Erickson and getting, you know, a top 10 pick. It, yeah, it sucks they didn't take any of those deals when they were afforded it, but at the same time, you know, th- yeah, it's pa- it's in the past. The rebuilding's over, and it's time to move forward and try and build a competitive team with the likes of the Elias Pettersons and the Quinn Hughes. For sure. And the other thing to keep in mind is ultimately at the end of the day, managers work is always within the confines of um, the roadmap or the vision that is kind of set. And I think this is one of the, one Mm -hmm. of the areas where um, it's important for the market to understand, especially with ownership and their expectation level, whether it would have been Jim Benning, whether after a season like that, they decide, would have decided to make a change and brought someone else in. I think regardless, the mandate would have been pretty similar in terms of get us back into the playoffs as soon as possible. So again, you almost have to kind of evaluate within under, within understanding the parameters of, of, uh, of the exact blueprint that, or, 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 or even, sorry, the goal that um, ownership is kind of set. So, um, when I look at it through that lens, yeah, hundred uh, percent. I I can definitely see the long term kind of skepticism uh, about okay, maybe could there have been a little bit more of a, more of a middle ground where maybe you were a little bit more calculated and disciplined, and maybe there was a way to still field a playoff competitive team without um, incurring so much long term risk and trading so much draft capital away. But um, that, that's just not, I think, the reality that we would have been in, regardless of if it was Jim Benning or, or another GM in, in his shoes. Because after the year that uh, the team had, with not only the lack of on-ice success, but with the COVID outbreak and 
um, you know, it was just a mess of year. And, and so yeah. I think regardless, this was bound to be an aggressive, uh, aggressive off season. So I kind of evaluate the, the, the team's work within that kind of, um, framework, if that kind of makes sense. No, absolutely. It makes, it makes total sense. And with the OEL Connor Garland trade, I mean, there is some, like a team's going to be better next season because they have Connor Garland and OEL on the team, but you know, long term with that OEL contract, it it, it gets risky, right? Like I I, I kind of push back when I see people online saying it was a cap dump with you know the Louis Ericsons, the the Jay Beagles, Antoine Roussels. It wasn't really a cap dump, more than a cap reallocation, right? You're taking you know yep. the, the thirteen fourteen million dollars, however much it was, and moving it into a guy who is going to play in your top four, whether he is still a bona fide top four defenseman. I mean, I, I'll, I'll get your opinion on that. But Connor Garland's a legit top six forward as well. Like, what, what's the opinion on, on OEL around the league? Is, is this guy washed or is this guy potential to have, you know, a bounce back season in, in an environment like Vancouver where, you know, there's a lot of attention and he's going to be playing for maybe, you know, maybe not a, a sure fire playoff team, but a team that has aspirations of competing this year. Yeah. So it was really interesting where, you know, I remember when trade rumors kind of percolated on the OEL front last off season. And at the time I started reaching out to kind of some contacts and some scouts around the league. And uh, there was a definite opinion that OEL was no longer a first pair caliber defender that is more close to the level of a second pair guy. And so that was kind of the, you know, the eye test perspective from the people that uh, are on the league that had watched him the closest. And so that that kind of uh, was reflected in the numbers as, as well, where before last season, there was definitely a downward slip uh, in his 5-on-5 five five performance. And the Coyotes were generally, I mean, I mean as, as even after adjusting for the team environment and the fact that they don't control play particularly well, uh, OEL was still in a spot where um, the team was allowing more shots, chances, and goals than they were um, when more, more than, more than they were generating essentially. And, and it wasn't a big difference of when OEL was on the ice um, and when he was off the bench in terms of the results improving. So um, through both lenses, I think you could tell that he's, he was more of a second pair kind of guy at that stage and then this past season happened and that's where I think a lot of kind of alarm bells went off a little bit where you looked at OEL and, and, and I think Arizona recognized that hey he's kind of tapering off in his performance and so uh, what Rick Tockett and the Coyotes did was they had Jacob Chikrin coming up on the left side of the defense as well and so they essentially demoted Ekman Larson and, and it's Chikrin to the top pair. And so now Chikrin was the one taking on uh, all the tough matchups. He was the one logging more minutes. And so OEL went from playing 23 to 25 minutes a night through the prime of his career to being a shade under 21 minutes a night. And most importantly, he was playing league average competition. He wasn't wow. matching up against the other team's top lines anymore. And even in light of that, his performance, you would have expected that in a more reduced capacity, he may improve. The problem was um, that his five of five performance tanked even further. And you can say you don't want to believe in the numbers, but that's kind of, 
you know, that's the opinion, whether you look at the data, whether you reach out to scouts, whether you even talk to OEL himself. I, I mean, his first media availability in Vancouver, he said that, um, frankly himself, that he needs to be a lot better than he, that he, that he's been and that he's struggled the last four years or so. So I think this is a player that recognizes the need to bounce back to need, the need to bounce back. Now, I think the one critical factor that I've talked about a lot that I think is going to benefit him is just the overall fresh start. Um, I think ultimately you, and this is something that I've tried to be more cognizant of is understanding that this is a sport played humans. And if you look at the situation that Larson's been, it was just a stale and dysfunctional relationship in Arizona where you look at his tenure there. He played 11 NHL seasons in a market that struggles to get fans in the uh, fans in the stands. And I think he had two postseason runs. Uh, the most recent one being in the Edmonton bubble where his team got thrashed by the Avalanche yeah, in five that. games in a demoralizing first round loss. And so, you know, that's got a way on you where you're playing losing hockey year after year in a market that frankly isn't very passionate about hockey. Um, all of the off ice uh, sort of drama where, you know, new ownership comes in and there's money issues and it's a toxic work environment. Uh, and then there's also the fact that Ekman Larson didn't get along well with head coach Rick Tockett. And um, he's played a really defensive oriented system that I don't think suited Ekman Larson's uh, free flowing offensive style where he loves to skate and make plays with the puck. So you look at the totality of, of those experiences, not to mention the fact that he went into last knowing that the team was essentially desperately looking to move him and his contract. So he knew coming into last season that he wasn't wanted by his team either. So all of those factors, I mean, I'd be miserable if I was in Ekman Larson's shoes. And the thing to always keep in mind is whether it's hockey, whether it's another sport, whether it's any job in any career field, you're always going to perform better in an enjoyable work environment. So I think those psychological factors are going to benefit Ekman Larson in terms of he's going to come to a brand new fresh start in a passionate hockey market um, on a team that has a lot more ambition than the Coyotes do in terms of Arizona's going through a rebuild. And um, so you look at all those factors and even, even knowing that uh, even knowing the history of, of Swedish players having su- success in Vancouver, I think all that's going to help Ekman Larson. I don't know. It's impossible to know the extent of how much that's going to help him bounce back. But I do think that um, just coming to a new environment and escaping Arizona is going to benefit him. And so I do expect that within the short term that Ekman Larson should be able to bounce back and provide Genuine top four value. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I expect him to pro- to be the top pairing workhorse that he was um, at the height of his career. But um, I think that he can definitely give Vancouver's top four a lift in the in the short term. We'll, and then after that, we'll just have to see how long he he stays at the, at that level because that's obviously going to be the key um, long term of the contract. Harmon, I think admitting that there's a human element to the game means they're going to have to revoke your computer boy club card. I think they're going to have to revoke <laughs> your membership. Isn't that how it works? 
Uh, yeah, it's, um, I, I, you know, it's, it's interesting where I think the more I have started to, you know, break down and, and really, I, I guess, become, I don't want to say involved in the industry, but just become closer to hockey. You're officially um, a big J journalist like, now. Yes. Thankfully. Um, I don't know. I, I, I just feel like they're, there, I've realized that there are so many layers and, and so many, like things are a lot more complex than they appear on the surface. And so I feel like a lot of times when moves happen, um, and I'm not just referencing the Ekman Larson one uh, in particular, but a lot of times when we evaluate players, it's a very uh, black and white world where it's like, oh, this player sucks or this player is um, an all-star caliber guy. And you know, a lot of times I always find that the truth is often – um again not as black and white sometimes in the middle and so um yeah that's just one thing i've tried to keep in mind with with a lot of these players is trying to take as many of these variables into into account how much do you think henrik and daniel sedin factored into the oel trade because i think hey, i was at that game the last home game but for henrik and daniel sedin i remember oliver ekman larson you know embracing henrik and daniel sedin like they were best buds how much do you think that factors into a trade like this? Well, I definitely, as my colleague uh, Thomas Transit kind of, um, they definitely had input, and it's it's one of those things where <laughs> the Canucks had essentially kind of been working on this Ekman trade on and off uh, since uh, last off season. Yeah. So that kind of you know you, you already knew that even before the Sedins came that this was a player that the organization had some level of interest in. Um, and so beyond that, I'm sure the, the Sedins would have connected with Ekman Larson, um, maybe even personally to, to get a sense of where his game's at, um, you know, what his situation in Arizona was like. And um, I, I definitely do think that they, that they would have had some level of, of input um, knowing how close of a relationship they would have had with, with Boyle. Uh, now, the other part of the trade, I think that the part of the trade that has a lot of people excited is Connor Garland. Like, I think, you know, everyone pretty much was happy for Connor Garland coming to the Vancouver Canucks as it means, you know, that, that top nine now for the Vancouver Canucks is pretty loaded. Like, I'd put it right up there, maybe just behind Vegas in terms of top nine forward groups in the Pacific Division. I mean, I guess like that changes if, you know, Vegas or a Calgary goes and gets Jack Eichel or even LA, you know, trades a bunch of assets to go get Jack Eichel. But right as of right now, that top nine is looking legit. So what is what is Connor Garland just really good at for maybe people who haven't watched him a ton in Arizona? Yeah, so Garland is undersized, but he's extremely feisty, extremely competitive, definitely has a bite and edge to his game. And I think that's kind of what powers his offensive profile, where uh, despite his small stature, he loves to get his nose dirty um, in the hard areas of the ice. He is someone who does who creates most of his offense um, in high traffic situations close to the net. Uh, he is he he's not the fastest in a straight line, but he's in the offensive zone off the cycle. He his edge work is really really good, and so he can spin out of checks and he's elusive, hard to really check. Um, and, and, and he's strong on his feet, uh, low center of gravity. 
And all of those factors just allow him to have success close to the net as a scorer. Um, he definitely makes some plays with the two, but definitely more of a shoot first kind of guy. Um, and, 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 and so he's, he's really interesting to me because he can, I, I think the, the biggest asset there is just simply his ability to put the puck in the back of the net. I know that um, he is putting a ton of emphasis this summer on, on trying to improve his finishing ability from in tight. Um, but that's kind of what he excels best at. He's a very smart player. He knows how to kind of um, work in and out of seams in the offensive zone. Like he has strong offensive instincts, and that's really the key to being um, a good uh, a good player from within the slot. Is you've got to not only have the the ability to battle and, and physically. Um, get open in, in, in those kind of areas, but you've got to be smart enough to recognize the soft spots in coverage uh, and to kind of know how to slip in and out of coverage so that you can kind of get lost. And, and, and then maybe you're there on the back door where nobody misses you. And, and those are just elements that Carlin does really well. And he's a really strong five and five play driver uh, beyond just what he can do offensively. You look at his two way profile and, and the impact that he's had at, at helping advance play up the ice and, um, helping control puck possession off offensive zone time. Um, he is just someone who I think is going to add a ton to Vancouver's top six. And, um, you know, I've talked about this a lot. There's got to be nobody happier about this trade than, than Bo Horvat, who, oh, I mean, we'll yeah. see if oh, Garland yeah. eventually fits on the top line or, or with Horvat. But um, in any instance, Horvat's, Horvat's going to get a shot now to have a top of the lineup piece. Uh, on his line, and and thankfully we're past the days of Louis Erickson and, and Jake Vertanen and platooning in the top six. Yeah, and you know what? It also moves. I know Bo Horvat's best buds with Tanner Pearson, but it moves Tanner Pearson down the lineup to a third line role where he's probably best fitted more than you know a second line role where he has to constantly have pressure to score. Right? Like I think that's another underrated part of this trade is it kind of helps all these forwards slot into their ideal roles. Absolutely. And, and I think with Pearson, it's going to be really interesting because he obviously has um, a detail-oriented two-way game. He's good along the walls, good on the four-check, responsible in terms of how he tracks on the back-check. And he is, therefore, I think, going to be a good fit alongside Jason Dickinson, who does a lot, all, who also does a lot of those things well. And Dickinson, in terms of his ability to prevent shots and chances against, um, one of the elite forwards uh, over the last couple of seasons. So when you look at that potential tandem, I think you've got the capability and the flexibility, depending on who you want to slot on the right wing, to have uh, Pearson and Dickinson take take on some of those tougher matchups potentially, and, and maybe you build that out to be a third kind of checking line. And you know maybe they don't take all of the tough matchups, maybe they share that responsibility, but in any case, it gives Travis Green the option and flexibility to uh, load up the second line with offensive talent and kind of free them up to uh, go to go to town and, and really just uh, be fr- not have to match up against Connor McDavid uh, every yeah. time Edmondson rolls into town. So I think that is going to be huge for Horvat's five and five offensive game, where we know how how much he already means to the power play, but. 
I don't think he's really been able to explode offensively at even strength in large part because he's essentially been thrown to the wolves when you look at his matchups, D-zone starts, when you look at um, the lack of help he's typically had. So, um, again, having Dickinson, being able to bump someone like Pierce down the line, that extra depth, I think now affords Horvat the opportunity to potentially take the next step in terms of his even strength offensive production. So, overall, I think... Adding Garland is, is you know, he provides a ton of value just by himself, but he's also indirectly going to help unlock the maximum potential of other players within the top nine as well. Okay, so let's move on to Canucks free agency. It felt like on that day, the Canucks signed an entire AHL team. Like, they just had so many of these yeah. Yeah, AHL plus signings. And I'll, I'll get, to get to those in a second, but I want to, let's talk about the new guys first. First off, uh, Tucker Pullman. Already, all, it seems like every year we need to have a really divisive defenseman to discuss it for the Vancouver Canucks, and it turns out this year it's probably going to be uh, Tucker Pullman. Have you heard? Have you read this thread on Reddit? A deep dive on Tucker Pullman. Have you seen this at all? Yeah, I have. What can, yeah. can we can we get? I saw it yesterday. Can we can we get the boy genius kind of proofreading or, or fact checking? Like you read this article, and I think, man, this guy's the next like Chris Tanev, just the ultimate shutdown defensive defenseman. And then I see, like, your colleague from The Athletic, Dom Lushizen, who says, like, he's replacement level and he's washed. So, like, where, where do we stand on Tucker Pullman? Is this thread any legit or is it all bullshit? Because it throws a bunch of numbers out there. And I'm like, you know what? I can get behind this. Yeah, so, you know, obviously a ton of work went into that. So kudos to him. And, and there were definitely some good points. And, you know, I I definitely do agree with uh, with um, the Fed creators kind of um, the posters uh, assessment that um, he's not washed placement level um, and and that's where ultimately I do think for instance and I and, and when the signing initially broke and, and Thomas Trance and I wrote we noted that we think Dom's model is. Um, kind of painting him in an unfavorable light, given the circumstances he was thrust into in, the, in Winnipeg, that it was treating, that it was rating him too harshly. Now, by that same token, I also think that the poster, you know, I, 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 I think, you know, for instance, he went into kind of looking at puck IQ data and trying to break down the numbers by the different competition level. And it's like, that's fine. But the is you look at just his overall, overall numbers, um, the overall sample size, the, the numbers really weren't that good. So it's like a little bit of cherry picking in that he was kind of looking at very small. He was kind of looking at that bigger sample, picking apart smaller pieces of it and saying, okay, well, he excelled here. But it's like you can't ignore where he got caved in and where he got completely crushed, right? Um, and the other element of it was, um, the eye test. And so he went back and, and he, and I think he analyzed all 22 goals against that was on the eye score and um, tried to attribute how much blame Pullman deserved for each of those goals against. Um, and that's fine. I think that's a really important thing to do, but that was kind of the basis for his entire eye test. And, you know, I think if you just focus on goals against, that's not really going to give you anywhere close to a full picture of a player's actual ability level. I'll give you a great example. If you're looking at, say, the 30 second, the 20, 30 seconds before uh, a goal against happens, and this is, I think, ultimately the issue. Anytime mm-hmm. there's a goal against, people always want to blame why. 
for that goal against. And yeah. almost always there are multiple players to blame before the breakdown that catches the eye. So for instance, let's say um, there is, uh, let, let's say Winnipeg was playing, I don't know, Minnesota. Uh, Minnesota dumps the puck and Pullman goes back uh, at the start of the shift for defenses on puck retrieval. We know he's not the greatest puck, so let's say he, he isn't able to make the DDD pass. And it's not like a brutal turnover, but it, you know, keeps Winnipeg hemmed into, hemmed into the zone. And then 40 seconds later, the, uh, Minnesota kind of scores. Well, if you look at only the, the few seconds preceding the goal, well, you're going to focus on whatever the defensive breakdown was. Yeah. But in that situation, you wouldn't be able to, you can't ignore um, the fact that this player wasn't able to move the puck out of the zone, um, you know, at the start of the shift and that that's the reason they were stuck in their own zone in the first place. And so I guess what my point, the point of what I'm trying to say is um, when you're watching a player, it's not as simple as just looking at five on five goal, looking at the five on five goals against and trying to blame certain guys. Um, and that's where, you know, I definitely looked at the numbers and, you know, they definitely weren't um, great on him, but I also recognized that he was in a tough Winnipeg environment that struggled to control play. I think even in light of that, um, even after you kind of adjusted for that, um, it it wasn't a flattering profile. And and then what I kind of did after that was I reached out to my athletic colleague, uh, Marat Atesh, who covers the Jets uh, full time. And you know, and and this is what I try and do more and more often is is go to go to the smart people that I know that have watched a guy play um, every game. And you know, his assessment was kind of, and I think it was a very fair one was. Pullman was very solid in the third pair role, but when he was forced to kind of step up into the lineup, he just had trouble containing top end speed and skill. Uh, and yeah. that's where also his inability to move the puck kind of um, was, and it really became an issue. And that when he played in, played in a matchup role next to Josh Morrissey, he was in over his head and he really struggled. And, and you talk to, like, I've seen the public discourse of any Jets fan as well. They'll say, they'll, they'll say a similar thing where he can be solid in a lesser role, but when he was asked to kind of step up in the lineup, um, you know, he, were, he really didn't fare all too well. So, you know, my opinion of it is ultimately Pullman is um, a right shot third pair guy who can... I should clarify, he's a third-pair quality defenseman. I expect him to play in the top four. Um, but on talent slash ability level, I think he's a third-pair guy. I think he um, can defend well. I think he does, in fact, move pretty well, add some grit. Um, he fits the bill in terms of um, the physical presence and the quote-unquote being hard to play against. But um, his puck skills are ultimately pretty limited. And um, again, his... You know, when you ask him to defend against top lines, I think that's um, you're asking him to do a little bit too much. So that's kind of how I see Pullman. I don't think that um, you know a lot of people said um, he's he's like he's he's barely NHL caliber, blah blah blah. I, I'm I, I don't I'm not that bearish on him. I think that's an overly simplistic view, where you're just looking at kind of the numbers. But I I also don't think that. Um, He's definitely not a top four caliber uh, defender on ability level, in my opinion. All right, a couple of things, Harmon. First, bold of you to assume that the poster was a he. You know, it's 2021. Women watch hockey too. Why couldn't that poster be female? Secondly, 
I'm 100% convinced that that poster was a plant from the Canucks video scouting staff. Like, I, I read the first, the end of the first paragraph, size and strength are very important in the playoffs. 100% Jim Benning told whoever made that post to put that in there. I'm convinced this was a plant to change the discourse around Tucker Poolman. You're right that, yeah, it, it very well could have been um, uh, a woman. I, so, I, yeah, I don't, I I don't mean, want to get you canceled on this show, Armin. No, totally. Um, yeah, no, for sure. It was just uh, top of mind that I, uh, yeah, you're right. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, honestly, like I really do respect the work that went into that post. Um, but, uh, and, but again, uh, there were elements of it that I kind of disagreed with the methodology. Um, so yeah, ultimately I do think they, they, you know, brought up here, she up some really good points. Uh, but there were also parts of it where I disagreed, but again, I really appreciate someone, someone clearly put a ton of time in it. So, um, I tip my cap off to, to them for that. An old Jason Botchford tip of the cap. I like it. Uh, so they, ha- the Canucks have a new backup. This is another new signing. Yaro Halak, hero of the 2010 Montreal Canadiens. Yaro Halak, he's been a backup the past couple of years for the Boston Bruins here in Vancouver. I initially did not get the structure of this deal, Harmon, because I see it's a 1.5 base salary, and then the bonus is 1.5. I'm like, okay, so they're essentially paying $3 million for their backup when they have like a legit starter, probably in my opinion, in Thatcher Demko. And then I read a bit more into it. It's like, okay, so... If you if you do if you structure it this way, one point five for the base salary, one point five for the bonuses, it's only one point five against the cap, and you save, you know, that much money when you have to try and re-sign guys like Elias Patterson and Quinn Hughes. So what what are your thoughts on, on Halak? Is he he's gonna be like a, a decent backup for the Canucks? Yeah, I think he can be a decent veteran backup. That's what he was in Boston for so many years. And um, Jim Benning mentioned on his conference call with media when asked about uh, Halak that they really deferred to Ian Clark on that one. And um, he had a lot of input on, on that decision to sign Halak. So, I mean, who am I to, to, to really um, go against what Clark believes? Yeah, don't go against the goalie whisperer, man. Yeah, if, if Ian Clark believes in the man, I believe in the man. It's really that simple. So, um, yeah, Halax over his career has just kind of been a steady backup uh, veteran. Obviously, he's now getting up there in age. And I think the structure of that contract, uh, if he hits his bonuses, it's ultimately going to create a little bit more dead money for next or not for the 2022-23 season. Um, so, I mean, that is a kind of something to keep in mind considering um, – the I mean the Luongo recapture penalty is coming off, so that's definitely a good thing. But when when you also take into account um, the Holby buyout penalty, um, the, the club's going to have to next offseason be um, really careful and, and kind of um, diligent and disciplined about how they spend their cash, knowing that Besser is going to be up for a new contract as well. So uh, that's just something to keep in the back of uh, back of the mind, but. Um, yeah, I have no real issues with the Halak signing, to be honest. I think it was, uh, I think it was fine. Yeah. And we mentioned this a, a while ago as well. The Canucks pretty much signed the entire Abbotsford Canucks lineup. It feels like in free HC, they signed a bunch of those, you know, AHL plus guys, you know, the guys who are obviously very good at the AHL level, but when it comes to the NHL, they lack, you know, whether it's the skating, the size, the shot, what have you to stick around 
at the NHL level. So, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to list them all off here, but they got like Brad Hunt, World Junior Hero, Nick Patan. Uh, yeah, they just signed a bunch of guys for the Abbotsford team. And like, I think, you know, it, for a new franchise, for a new market, it's got to be pretty decent to know that, you know, they're probably going to be one of the better teams right off the hop in the AHL, right? And you know what? It creates some decent depth organizationally for the Canucks because, look, we all know injuries are going to happen to this team. They happen every year. It's it's it, like clockwork. Someone's getting injured, and one of these guys from the AHL team is going to have to come up and step in for a bit. So when you got guys like Nick Batan who, yeah, he's, I, I can see why he hasn't really stuck around at the AHL, at the NHL level. He's a bit of a smaller guy, but put him in a sheltered fourth-line role, he can probably be pretty decent, right? Absolutely. And um, I really liked uh, the Brad Hunt signing in particular. Um, I know that uh, that's someone that uh, transfers high on as well, and I definitely see see it where he's uh, he kind of fits the similar stylistic bill as some of the left shot uh, guys as uh, a left puck move. can play both sides. I, I love that about Hunt. Um, and just that extra versatility he has just an awesome, awesome personality. And, and that's the kind of, you know, person you want to bring into the organization as depth, um, local kid of Maple Ridge, I believe. Um, so just, just with Hunt and, and the thing to keep in mind there is I think a lot of people look at, look at him and automatically assume he's going to be Abbotsford bound, but I don't think he's played in the AHL in I think at least like four or five years like he's been a genuine NHL player and he's driven really solid uh, five five results uh, during those kind of NHL assignments I mean it was only a year ago that um, he played 60 games uh, for the wild and he played all four playoff games against the Canucks in the middle so he's a regular number six number seven defenseman for the last number of years and so that really I think provides uh, a ton of competition where he's going to be able to push uh, Jack Rathbone and Ole Levy. And, and that I think is going to be a really interesting camp battle, uh, especially because you requires waivers uh, yeah. to, to be sent down to the AHL next, ne- next year. So, you know, that's one of the things that I'm curious about is if hunt and Rathbone have better camps than you would the Canucks actually be willing to waive former fifth overall pick? Um, so, in any, in any case, I like Hunt and, and the extra depth that he's going to be able to add on the back end. Um, I also like Phil Giuseppe. He was once a really highly touted uh, prospect for Carolina. He was an early second-round pick in 2013. Um, he had a really enticing offensive toolkit. Uh, really lived up to his potential in that sense. But um, last last couple seasons he spent the last couple seasons with the rangers and he's uh, become a veteran of 201 nhl games and and the reason he has kind of stuck around is because he has learned to this physical aggressive kind of player where he he loves to lay the body i think i looked at uh, the rate at which he threw hits over the last two seasons and um on a per game basis you know, his hit rate ranks would rank, I think, second among Canucks forwards right after Tyler Mott. So he's someone going to be able to bring a physical presence. Um, he is a hard competitor on the forecheck. Um, he will occasionally drop the gloves. And so he's not, uh, to, to, to clarify, he's, he's definitely not like an enforcer type or anything. But the point is, he's uh, he, he loves to play with some bite and edge and, 
Um, you know, the Canucks seem to value that. And in addition, he's quietly also been able to produce um, the uh, five and five scoring results. Um, you know, his uh, regular counting uh, stats, just his reg- raw point totals, don't really jump out uh, jump out off the page. But um, if you look at his five and five production relative to his ice time, I think he's over his NHL career scored one point three one points per. Uh, every 60 minutes that he's played at five and five, which is a really, really respectable rate for a fourth line player. It's much higher than, for example, what Matthew Highmore has um, has uh, has garnered. So I think he'll provide Highmore with a really interesting um, competition for the fourth line left left wing spot. Uh, and then um, even on the right side, when you look at uh, someone like Brady Keeper and, and Kyle Burrows and um, and I was, uh, I was a fan of how they restocked Abbotsford, and I really think that uh, that uh, the Baby Canucks are, are are poised to be one of the be- one of the better teams in the AHL, and I think that's great. Whenever you're going to be trying to implement uh, prospects and and get them developed through through Abbotsford as well, is that the nickname we've settled on Abbotsford, the Baby Canucks? Is that what we're going with? I like the Baby Canucks. I, I think it's it's fair enough, but like we, I'm sure we could come up with something better. Like this is the problem with why they named it. The bait, the, the Canucks, like we couldn't come up. With I wanted them. aviators, full Me disclosure. Too. I wanted, aviators. I wanted something, I wanted something cool like that. We could have, you know, we would have seen a blog like the air hanger or something like that. It would have been cool, but you know, I, I get the, I get the branding opportunities and everything. And I have to mention all the 11, you mentioned, are they willing to send him down because he, he will require waivers next season. Look, I get, he was the fifth overall pick and everything. But at some point, you know, that's water under the bridge. It's been five or six, five, six seasons since he was picked fifth overall. Like, at this point, if he's not good enough, you just got to move on. Like, this guy cannot defend the rush. Like, why are you keeping him around solely because he was a fifth overall pick? Yeah, um, we'll see, though, because obviously management has skin in the game. Um, optically, I mean, there is there's no doubt. I, I fully agree with, with what you said, and, you know, it's, it's, it's easy for me to say as well that, if he doesn't earn the spot out of the camp, you just you have no choice but to waive him. But um, ultimately, the management is going to have skin in the game, and optically, it would not be a great not be a great look. It kind of almost be an admission that you know he is like they really tried to they really tried to make Levy happen in the NHL last year, and he was competent. I think he was fine, but as the team becomes deeper. You know, I I don't know if, if if he's really going to be one of the one of the one of the, the top defensemen. He still has a shot. Like, don't get me wrong, uh, but I do wonder if, let's say, there's, you know, Rathbone and Ulevi are both look pretty similar at camp. I do wonder if if it will if it would be easier in management's mind to reassign Rathbone to Abbotsford and let him play top minutes and 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 just keep Ulevi around and not have to wave him. So. I, I agree with your assessment. I wonder if management feels kind of the same way, though. It'd be it'd be a damn shame if it, if it got to that point for for Jack Rathbone. Uh, let's let's get to some of the rec, you know returning players. Uh, first up, Brandon Sutter. Now, Brandon Sutter next year, in my opinion, is going to be a fascinating psychological experiment because I've noticed it, especially in this flat cap era. So last season, even the season before, you are judged first and foremost. It seems like more and more by how much you count against a salary cap, right? Like that seems to be 100% how you're judged in terms of fans eyes first and foremost. And obviously Brandon Sutter at 1.125 or whatever 
is, I think is going to have a totally different reaction with Canucks fans than Brandon Sutter with 4.375 with a full, you know, no trade clause, right? Like, it's just going to be fascinating to see in my it, next season when we watch the Canucks, how fans react to if Brandon Sutter makes a turnover when he's making, you know, a fourth of what he was making previously on his contract. Perception's already changed. You're 100% bang on. He, uh, you know, with that with that contract, he really fits what the Canucks needed in that fourth line center spot um, as a right shot centerman, which is really, really, I think, um, you know, the, the coaching staff values that because they have three lefties when you look at their top nine centermen. Uh, someone who kills penalties. He's a good veteran leader. I know a lot of people scoff at that. You definitely don't want to overpay for those kinds of intangibles, but when it's a one-year deal at just over one million, like why not? That that does have value, and so for all those reasons, um, I I like the fit of Sutter in that fourth line center role. I like that to be quite honest with you. I think he checked off a lot of boxes. The only concern there is durability. Uh, but again, as um, as Drancer had kind of written a couple of days ago, the contract, and, and this is really what I, what I mean uh, when I say um, that the Canucks you know, had uh, a really approach to the off season was by specifically choosing 1.125. And I'm not, I'm not going to really get into the nuts and bolts of the cap and really bore people. And, and, you know, um, I'm not sure that I'd be able to explain it particularly well uh, just by talking about it anyway, but essentially 1.125 is the exact amount that um, of cap relief you get when someone is buried in the minors. Um, so essentially what that means is let's, let's say for instance, hypothetically, the Canucks still had Louis Erickson. He's a $6 million player. Well, when you send Louis Erickson down to the minors, you get 1.125 million of cap relief. So the point here is if Sutter gets injured and you put him on, on long-term injured reserve, the amount of, the amount of cap relief the Canucks would gain by putting Sutter on LTIR is equivalent to his cap hit. It's 1.125. So now because that 1.125 matches what Erickson, um, you know, Erickson's relief down the minors, it's like you, you can hypothetically call up any, any player at any cap hit uh, from the minors. So that's, I think, really key where, you know, even if the Canucks had a $10 million player um, that they had sent down to the minors, they'd be able to recall that player um, if they put Sutter on LTIR. So, um, I think there's baked in injury insurance with that contract as well. Uh, so that's just another clever uh, detail oriented um, kind of component of the deal that, um, that makes this uh, a good bet in my mind. So Travis Hamnick is also back with the Vancouver Canucks and he got a pay raise. He's making 3 million per season. Now, is it just, did he just get a pay raise because now, you know, there was reports that he's willing to go to other teams outside of Western Canada and there was, a bit more of a bidding war. Is that what it comes down to? Or were the, you know, Jim Benning and the Canucks just really enamored with how he played with Quinn Hughes last season? I think it's a bit of a mix of both, but I think overall, when you look at the defense market and call it the Montreal Canadiens effect, with how their big uh, top four D kind of shaped perception, but you know, really the theme of free agency that kind of stuck, stuck out was, uh, bigger physical defensemen that uh, teams started valuing all of a sudden again. Uh, like Cody Cece got 3.25, I think, over what a four year deal. Um, you look at what Derek Forbert got. Um, obviously, Pullman falls into that category too. 
it's just a really expensive market to get defense help. And so that's where the Canucks were unfortunately caught. And so they would have had to, like that would have been market value for Hamannick, I think, especially being able to keep the term to two years. Ultimately, I don't, here's my kind of thought process on it. I would have had no issues if the Canucks brought back or, or signed one of Pullman or Hamannick to those contracts. Like, if, if they decided to let Hamnick go and sign Pullman, like I wouldn't, like that's fine, right? Like you needed one player. Mm-hmm. The only issue that I kind of see is Hamnick and Pullman are, in my opinion, they profile pretty similarly as on talent and ability level, they're not quite top four players. Uh, they're both physical, they're both defensively oriented, they both block shots, they're both really good people. And so from that perspective, you know, I just thought, you're paying a similar price for the same kind of player. And ultimately I would have liked to see the team maybe explore the trade market um, and, you know, allocate, you know, but between that two and a half to 3 million on, on maybe a different archetype of player with maybe a little bit more upside to his game. Uh, but it was a difficult spot for the Canucks to find right side help. There were no obvious answers. And, and so the Canucks just decided to bring Hamannick back to play with Hughes so uh, we'll see how it ultimately turns out. Uh, I mean, at the end of the day, that, that right side is Vancouver's Achilles with Hamannick, um, Pullman, and, and Myers. It's there really all isn't four or five guys who... there. That's the problem. Exactly. And so we'll, we'll see how it shapes up. I mean, you're going to have to ask a lot of lefty guys. And that's where you know Quinn Hughes is going to have to bounce back and show his rookie season form. Uh, Oliver ekman Larson is going to have to bounce back and be better than he than he has been in Arizona the last two or three years. Um, and that's where whoever wins the le- the the last third pair uh, lefty job, whether it's Rathbone or, or Hunt or you Levy, you know that player is going to have to be on on the top of his his game. So it's uh, you're putting a lot of the burden and, and emphasis really on the on the left side guys to help prop up. Um, the uh, the right side defenders. Okay, so two other moves that didn't count. You know, they weren't free agent signings, but still significant moves. Uh, Brain Holpe officially bought out from the bank by the Vancouver Canucks. Nate Schmidt. We talked about this earlier. Essentially, they returned Nate Schmidt for what they got for him. Uh, like, was there no market for Brain Holpe at that price? And I, I always just assumed the Canucks were just going to retain some money and, and get it over with. Schmidt, like you mentioned earlier, you know, good job for not having to retain or anything like that. But Schmidt, you know, it didn't, it didn't work out. And it just goes to show how terrible that 2020 offseason was from the Canucks. You know, just less than a year later, they pretty much have nothing to show for it. Yeah, and with, uh, with Holpe, I think there was definitely, you know, some qualified trade interest, I think, after the expansion draft, things cooled off a little bit on that front, and you, I think, I think you would have had to retain salary or take another contract back to to really make that trade work. And I think the Canucks wanted to explore those opportunities, and ultimately, I think they were perhaps even considering letting one of their RFA's, like a Jason Dickinson, perhaps go to arbitration, which would have then opened up a second buyout window. And I think the thought process there would have been okay, let's continue to scour the trade market for potential Holpe landing spots. And then if that doesn't work, we'll, we'll deeper into the summer, use our, use our second buyout window on him. I think the Canucks' preference was to find a trade for Holpe. 
but ultimately i think um you know as it's kind of been reported i think uh pretty widely uh within the local media hopi definitely wasn't cool with the idea of um of having to wait until a potential second buyout window um and it you can kind of get it from his perspective i mean that deep in the summer most teams would have probably filled out their uh would have probably found their their remaining goaltending uh spots and so you know hope it probably would have been looking at limited options in terms of potential destinations and so the uh i guess the canucks kind of you know saw that perspective on him and you know you want to you want to treat players the right way so they decided to go the buyout route and that obviously clears up a ton of sp- uh, cap space this season, um, much of which, you know, some of which they already allocated to Halak. Um, and then there is obviously the the penalty uh, close to, I think it's around 1.8 million um, that um, that they get charged with next off season. So that's obviously not ideal, but, you know, it is what it is. You make a mistake, you kind of have to eat it. Um, and then, which again, it's, you know, it's one of those trades where you're kind of, undoing uh, a mistake and yeah. it's like good job for that it's a good trade in vacuum um but uh we've also kind of got to be careful not to give a team too much credit for um digging themselves out of a hole they dug themselves right it's it's almost like um when the canucks traded um good branson for for pearson right it was like yeah this this is a great trade right on its own getting rid of good branson and getting useful piece back um but you all you can't ignore the fact that the the club ultimately gave up all those assets to get him in the first place and and the and the mistake there and you know again you can say well it was just a one-year rental but um you know what could the connects have done with nearly six million in cap space last offseason a lot right they were right up against the cap and they had no space to to fully no space to resign tanev no space to resign stetcher um you know with with that space even you look at the i mean this year the free agency frenzy was back in full swing i mean there were bad cracks signed all over but last offseason any team that had cap space and they were whether it was a trade market or free agency they were able to take advantage of so many opportunities so there's definitely an opportunity cost to the schmidt acquisition but um kudos to the canucks for being able to dump the full full freight of his salary without having to take uh any money back or, or having to retain them all right so one final question Harmon. now that everything's settled now that you know we have a, a general picture of what this team is gonna look like heading into next season obviously they still have to sign like Lewis patterson quinn hughes jason dixon but there are phase like a deal is gonna get done eventually where, where do you see this team in the overall scheme of the NHL? Like, where do they stand in the Pacific? Are they a playoff team? What, what's your official prediction? They're a bubble playoff team, I think. Um, you know, obviously Vegas is, um, they're, 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 one of the, they're probably one of the playoff locks in the Pacific. After that, it, it really is kind of a wide open field. But, um, you know, the Canucks have, the Edmonton Oilers had a ton of cap space open up finally and they had a chance to uh really um really distance themselves i think from a team like the canucks and in my opinion they really didn't um when you look at um they spent ended up spending nearly 21 million allocating a quarter of their cap space essentially to duncan keith 
to Cody CC to Zach Hyman to um, Mike Smith. Oh, good uh, Lord, yeah. I don't know if I'm missing they, somebody they really else there. They really fucked it up. They really fucked it up. Yeah, and so the right side of their blue line is it has a ton of question marks. Um, you know, the, the their top nine looks really strong. I think especially with Hyman now in the fold, but you know their goaltending is also kind of suspect. You know, that's a team that um, the Canucks can catch, right? Like that's one of the teams that Vancouver is probably going to have to beat out if they want to make the playoffs. Um, I think a lot of people are, I think. If, already counting out Calgary and you know I get it that's a team that just perpetually underperforms their their talent level on paper but um even after having lost Giordano and I mean look the Blake Coleman contract's going to age very poorly but in the short term he's going to he should be able to provide them a pretty decent lift so um you know if Markstrom can bounce back um if Tanev can continue to be what he was for Calgary last year you know, Calgary's, I think, you know, especially with a full season of uh, Daryl Sutter behind the bench, who I think is the right kind of coach for for them in terms of, um, you know, getting that locker room in order. I think they'll be competitive. I think the Kings, after how aggressive they were and getting to know and getting Arvidsson and, and, and getting Edler, um, they'll be competitive. I think Seattle is going to be competitive. You, you know what it is? It's like, after Vegas, there's no team that really stands out as, oh, they're for yeah. sure going to make the playoffs. But almost every team, I think, is going to be competitive and they're going to, I think, still be in the race. And, and that's where the Canucks, they they have a formidable advan- advantage with their top nine. But um, the defense, I think, is still really, really suspect. Uh, and, you know, they're once again going to have to be really dependent on Trudemko so I think they're ultimately a playoff. They're ultimately ultimately a bubble playoff team where they're going to be on on the fringes, on the edge, and, and it's you know one of those, one of those teams where um, it's probably going to be a close race right till the end. Yeah, and, and you know what, the Canucks are probably going to have to win every game like four, three, five, four with that defense. Like that right again, that right side. That's just the biggest hole on the on the Canucks for me. Like. You're going in with Tyler Myers, Tucker Pullman, and Travis Hamannick. Like, it, I guess it's a, it's the best they can do, but still, you know, a significant hole uh, for the Canucks going to the next season. Harmon, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast. Hopefully, we can have you on again uh, a bit sooner than last time. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. All right, thank you to Harmon Dial of the Athletic for hopping on the podcast. Much appreciated. And this is going to be the the last episode for I guess just over a month I'm going to take a bit of a break month off do some work for the podcast maybe rejiggle some things around you know maybe it sounds a bit different when I come back in a month or so maybe it looks different as well but we're going to take just over a month off here recharge the batteries I've been doing this weekly and twice weekly for the entire year, all of 2021. It's been a lot of fun, but I need a bit of a break before I I get back to it when training camp opens in September. So that's probably when I'll be back, mid-September, or when the Canucks training camp starts up again. I think there's going to be a lot of interesting battles for positions, especially on the defense. I think there's room for guys to bounce up or bounce down the lineup. 
So we're going to take a bit of a bit of a break, a month, just over a month. We'll be back for the Canucks training camp. And you know what? Maybe we'll be back for a special episode, a special guest. But if not, this is going to be the last episode for at least a month, month and a bit for the uh, Power of the Towel podcast. It's been a lot of fun doing this these past eight months. Looking forward to when the Canucks are back on the ice for the start of the 2021-22 training camp. It's going to be a lot of fun. But it, we're, we're, taking a bit of a, we're taking a bit of a break. Hope you understand. And... Yeah, it's going to just recharge the batteries and we'll be back new and improved. Maybe not so new, but improved for the start of the Canucks training camp in mid-September. So that's it for the Power of the Towel podcast today, part of the Next Misconduct Network of Podcasts. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google, wherever. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, rain review. Much, much appreciated. Once again, this is the Power of the Towel podcast, part of the Next Misconduct Network of Podcasts. My name is Nick Bondi. Thank you for listening.